Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepys, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Maddie Burkert, Assistant Professor of English and Digital Humanities at the University of Oregon. Burkert's research interests include cultural studies, digital humanities, drama and performance studies, gender and sexuality studies, Renaissance and early modern literary studies, restoration and 18th century literary studies. Her monograph, Speculative Enterprise, Public Theaters and Financial Markets in London, 1688 to 1763, has been published today by the University of Virginia Press. Thanks, Maddie, for coming on the show and congratulations on the publication of your book. Thank you so much and thanks for having me. So what led to your interest in early modern Renaissance and 18th century culture, performance and literature? How did you come to that area of specialization, those areas of specialization? Yeah, it's kind of a, a roundabout way. I think a lot of the time in literary or historical studies, people will be primarily interested in a particular um, time period or cultural moment and then sort of choose the, the, their, um, their focus from there. But I, I actually was interested in economic crisis primarily and wanted to get to the bottom of where these kind of boom bust cycles that we live in today came from and where our kind of public understandings of them came from. And that led me to the 17th and 18th centuries in England and, and the sort of so-called financial revolution uh, at that time. So I kind of came to um, the, the time period circuitously. And then I also came to theater and performance circuitously in that I found actually in the process of doing my graduate school reading lists, I hadn't sort of settled on whether I was going to do, you know, fiction or print culture, or poetry, drama. And it was in the process of doing my breadth exams that I sort of figured out that the theater was really where these ideas were worked out in the public psyche. So. So let's talk a little bit about the newly published monograph. Um, given what you've said, help us to understand um, the title. Why don't you gloss the title for us? In particular, I'm interested in speculative enterprise. Yeah, the, the title, um, I think I, it's been a long journey, but I think I'm at least partially indebted to Terry Kelly at University of Wisconsin for the title. Um, speculative enterprise, really refers to the fact uh, that you could describe both the stock market of 17th and 18th century England in terms of speculation and the um, theaters in terms of speculation, the forms of imagination that theater and performance invite and the ways that those are analogous to the forms of imagination that um, financial capitalism invites. But also um, at the same time, the fact that the workings of these businesses, the material conditions of these two kinds of enterprise were very similar. And in fact, um, deliberately so, in that the joint stock companies that traded in um, spices and enslaved human beings took in some ways their cues for how to be structured um, from precedents that existed, including the way that theaters would be um, funded by shareholders, have profit shares that were divided up that could be, um, you know, further subdivided and speculated upon and gambled upon. Th those structures were already familiar from the ways that public theaters were operating. And so these two types of enterprise developed in tandem and developed many of the same um, material structures. So uh, it's, it's a familiar insight in many ways that 
literary, dramatic, and imaginative speculation have alliances with economic speculation, um, but I really try to emphasize also the enterprises, the material conditions of those two worlds. So crucial to that part of your argument is, is uh, this, the phenomenon that you call the theater finance nexus. And, you know, this is a key contribution of the book is to center this theater finance nexus. So tell us a little bit more how you define that term and why it's a topic that's worth studying and also maybe why it's a topic that hasn't been studied very much. Yeah, so the highest compliment and also most devastating thing people say to me about this book is, well, yeah, like, <laughs> was there not already a book that said that? And you know, there wasn't already a book that said that. And I went looking for it and I had to write it. So, um, so theater finance nexus is a way of talking about this um, space of discourse that came up around the fact that theaters and financial markets had these parallel structures, not only in terms of imagination um, and speculation, but also in terms of the way that they actually functioned. And then most importantly, those two sets of parallels and the creation of this discursive space gave rise to really um, compelling and also chaotic formulations of theories about how publics worked. And so in this very familiar narrative in history and humanities fields about the rise of the bourgeois public sphere, um, which has been obviously like argued to death, but that's always imagined in terms of coffee houses where people would pick up newspapers. It's been imagined in terms of the print periodical and in terms of sort of the, um, the upper middle-class gentleman, um, you know, it's been imagined in terms of masculinity, in terms of propertyness, in terms of urbanity, in terms of um, all of these kinds of associations we have with what it meant in the early modern period for people to get together and hold debates and hold their government accountable. And what I show is that really um, in terms of theorizations of the public, one of the most vibrant places we can look is the theater. And we notice this only really fully if we pay attention to how the theaters were being imagined in terms of the way financial publics were forming at the same time. Like it's this moment where these two kinds of publics are imagined together that enables all of these much more vibrant theorizations of what it means to be public that have a lot more in common with, you know, 20th and 21st century theorizations about um, you know, counterpublics, queer counterpublics, for example, in the vein of Michael Warner. So, um, so that's the idea of the theater finance nexus. So it's, um, that last point you raised about um, when you when you focus on the coffee house rather, I'm sorry, the playhouse rather than the coffee house as the paradigmatic space of early modern public formation. You just said that when you do that, you realize there are resonances that speak to us in in very profound ways. And you mentioned counterpublics. So just help us understand what, when you say counterpublics and you re reference Warner's work, what is a counterpublic and why is that something that's important? What are the benefits for a, a literary historian or a cultural historian or economic historian to be attentive to that or to, to discover that those counterpublics are existing? Sure, I love this question. Um, I wanna preview that I, I've been thinking increasingly since writing the book and you know, I finished writing it more than a year ago um, that, the, that in really interesting ways, it speaks to the moment we've been in with Black Lives Matter protests and particularly with 
um, the way that critiques around uh, critiques of those protests have coalesced around questions of private property destruction and ownership. Um, because the, the code in my book is all about 18th century critiques of protesters destroying private property and the different kinds of understandings of what it means to own property and to own public space that are in contention there. So I'll kind of put a pin in that though um, and, and come back to it and say, you asked about why, you know, what is a counter public? Why, is, why am I referring to Warner and why is this an important concept? Um, so when Jürgen Habermas made this sort of influential formation of the bourgeois public sphere, as you know, he was, um, he was actually trying to critique what was happening in the 20th century with mass media and mass mediatization. He was actually not very interested in what happened in the 18th century at all. It was a way for him to complain about what was happening in his own time. And so what he was trying to do was create this kind of, um, although he did in his own work problematize it to his credit, he was trying to create this kind of idea of what things had been like and should be more like, which is a space of rational critical debate is what he calls it, right? That people debate together about matters of common concern based on a shared understanding of what constitutes a sort of a rational informed citizenry. And echoes of this still today very much, right, in all of our conversations about misinformation, about citizenship, around COVID, around elections, right? There still is this implicit idea that there is some kind of idealized space of rational critical debate where everyone comes in with the same facts and everyone comes in with on equal standing and you just, you have a debate, you hash it out and the best idea wins. I, to my knowledge, that's never happened ever in the course of any human civilization, um, but I could be, please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but this was meant to actually just be a kind of imaginary counterpart to him cr criticizing the way that mass mediatization in the 20th century had produced a kind of docile citizenry um, that was less informed. And so um, what, what Warner comes in and does that is really radical and, and really, you know, in my mind, insightful is he says, there's not an opposition between consumer culture and publicness or public citizenship. All of us are consumers because we live in capitalism and in a consumer culture. We, we actually have forms of affect and belonging and kinship and citizenship that are formed by those consumer relations as well, um, which I think is part of the point that Ling Ma is getting at in Severance, um, her pandemic novel, um, that, that's a critique of capitalism that ends up being really you know, earnest in other ways, that, that there is not quite the clean break between um, consumerism and citizenship that we'd like to believe. And he locates that in, in his book um, on, on publics and counterpublics, he's primarily interested in 20th and in tw late 20th century queer counterpublics and the ways that they mobilize and the ways that they use forms of um, popular media and commodification and consumer culture for that mobilization. Um, and Warner also has written about 18th century American history and is, yeah, I believe by training, was an 18th century historian before he started to become more of a you know, theorist. And when he wrote Letters of the Republic, he, he argued that the paradigmatic space for um, 18th century counterpublic formation was the, um, was the newspaper, was the print public sphere. And so even in, even in, you know, really valuably complicated 
complicating Habermas, he still keeps the emphasis on the print public sphere and the way it circulates in coffee houses in the 18th century. And so I'm taking his idea and showing that 18th century people already had a really sophisticated understanding of the ways that their identities as consumers and citizens uh, were in like a product productive contestation, but also um, enmeshed. They already understood that. And to see that they under already understood that, we have only to look at the space around the theater, the, the media generated by the theater. So in relation to that point, you, you know, one of the ways in which you get at these uh, 18th century counterpublics that are being formed through this mass culture and commodified mass culture of, of the playhouse and of the theater is to focus on questions of gender and class. And this, I think, is another really fascinating part of your book. So tell us what's important, what's um, significant about this period and this uh, genre of performance in relation to questions of gender and class. Yes, so as I was saying before, the ideal of the, the participant in the bourgeois public sphere is a propertied man, um, propertied white man. And so um, that, that, is, that was then also sort of the ideal of who should participate in these emergent public spheres. But if we look at the theater, we see all sorts of uh, other ways that people could get, kind of get into this space and be part of these conversations. And that the theater allowed that in ways that other forms of media didn't always enable. So for example, um, it was easier for, for women to uh, become playwrights in the 18th century than it had been previously, although it was still quite hard. Um, it was still not an easy way to make your living as a woman, but it was becoming increasingly possible. And whereas when the theaters first reopened following the civil wars in 1660, the women who wrote for the stage then were accused of essentially being um, sex workers rather than cultural workers. Um, by, the, by the beginning of the 18th century, it's increasingly possible to imagine a woman writing professionally for a reason other than attracting clientele to uh, her brothel. So, um, and so we have people like Susanna Saltlever, who's the playwright that I talk about in the third chapter of my book, who become very savvy at manipulating the way that the theatrical market works, um, and also at using plays to intervene in broader debates over how theaters work, how stock markets work. And so when women at this time, obviously, were not able to vote, and in fact, um, most, you know, working class men were not able to vote, people of color were not able to vote, like very few people were able to vote. Um, she was able to actually have, you know, set forth really sophisticated political and economic ideas through her drama and also through the ways she enacted her agency as a woman writer. So that would be one example. And then, as I mentioned, the coda talks about what were called the half price riots in 1763. Um, and this was the um, basically these were a series of very um, I mean riots were very common in the theater this time they happened all the time but these were particularly notable ones because they they pretty much the the protesters pretty much um, by all accounts really destroyed the theaters so that they had to close for a period of time for reo for, for uh, repairs and um, the people participating in those riots were angry because ticket prices were being raised, basically, and they felt they were being priced out of shared cultural experiences. And um, when, when 
people who opposed these riots wrote critiques, they insistently emphasized the protesters' class status as being working class or middle class. Um, they repeatedly emphasized their ethnicity, um, the Irishness of some of the people leading these protests was at stake. Um, and gender and class and ethnicity became really, really central to who was positioned as having a right to a voice in how this public space worked. So in addition to being a scholar, as you've made very clear of early modern and 18th century literature and theater, you are also an expert in digital humanities. So the first thing is, tell us how you define the field of digital humanities, or is that something that you can do for us? Well, it's the eternal question. What is digital humanities? Um, I, I, I think that for me, the core of what digital humanities is, is it is um, a methodological as well as kind of theoretical and practice oriented space where we can work through both what the effect of computational technologies is on humanities research and teaching and how humanities and re how humanities research and teaching can and should contribute to or talk back to our discourses around the rise of computational technologies. So that's that's a wonderfully concise uh, definition. I'm I'm <laughs> I'm very impressed. Um, so let's let's put some flesh on that definition. So you are the principal investigator of the London Stage database. What is that? What is that? And tell me, if you can, how it does these two, this, this uh, bi-directional thing that you've just described. Sure. So the London Stage database is um, a searchable database of information about, I think at this point, it's about 52,000 plus performances uh, recorded as taking place in London between 1660 and 1800. And the source for these reference entries is a, is a, 8,000 page reference book, The London Stage, 1660 to 1800, that was published in the middle of the 20th century. It was turned into an early form of the database in the 1970s, like on a mainframe computer stored on magnetic tape. Um, subsequently lost, I worked um, with my team to recover it and then sort of revitalize it and create a modern relational database of the kind you would expect where you can do like an advanced search and look by you know, actor or role or title or date or any of those kind of parameters you would expect and uncover a page for a theatrical event that you can see the reference book page, you can see the information we've pulled out of it, um, and you can kind of explore information about that particular event. And I say event because a night at the theater wasn't just going and seeing a play. You know, we think about, I'm going to go see this play, but a night at the theater was about um, musical interludes and acrobatics and short little plays that were in between the acts of the main play and a little play before the play and a little play after the play, um, which is why people would pay good money to get in halfway through the show. And that was the ticket prices, the half price riots were the ticket prices for half price admission at, at the middle point um, were being taken away. So it was really kind of like a, a multi-part extravaganza every night at each of these theaters. And so these events that you can pull up really give you information about this, you know, much wider, more textured kind of cultural experience that people had, as opposed to just the title of the play. So that, in terms of how that reflects this kind of bi-directional 
movement. Um, so the fact that this is now a database is incredibly just like functionally useful for 18th century theater scholars. And I've heard from many people in my research area, um, the, the ease and possibilities of using this to conduct a query and say like, you know, I wanna see performances where this actor and that actress appeared on stage together in this day range. It enables things that were either impossible or incredibly laborious using a print reference book. Um, so that's just sort of, that's just computational technology enabling humanities research. But I've also tried to um, design the database in a way that speaks back to aspects of our technological culture um, that we often take for granted. So when we look at a database interface, we think about the information that we get back from it as having a kind of solidity or authority, um, perhaps not being as grounded in messy human experience and bodies and you know choices as it actually is. And so um, if you go to one of these event pages on the London Stage database, you not only see the reference book page that we scanned, um, or actually that Google Books scanned, um, and uh, and that we, you know, we've included that reference book page, we've included all this data, but you, it's actually in kind of like a little um, gallery where you can circle through different images. So there's the image of the reference book page, and then there's an image of what the code, what the data that was recovered from these like ancient floppy disks looked like. And then there's another version of it once we had run it through our cleaning program. And then you can see another version of it once we've run it through our parsing program. So you can watch it, how the sausage gets made and you can see the choices that we made um, along the way. And then also, you know, for example, when you run a query in the database, so you run a search, there's a button that allows you to see what that search looked like once it was translated into code. And if you are, you know, literate in code languages um, and this is, you know, using SQL, so it's, it's, it's English, you know, you just have to know how to follow the, the, the logic of it. Um, but if you are able to follow that logic, you can see all kinds of assumptions we made. Weight this property more than that property. Value this when you're doing a relevance, uh, when you're sorting by relevance, what does it mean to be relevant? Well, it means that this parameter is weighed this way and that parameter is weighed that way. So we try to, at every stage, help people to um, kind of question the assumptions they might come to, you know, a clean, shiny database interface with and show them how deeply messy and human everything underneath it really is. And that that's not just the case for my database because I'm a humanities scholar, it's the case for all the databases we're encountering all the time. So you are, among other things, <laughs> it's very clear that you, you do many things, but one of the things that you do is that you're a teacher and you're in fact an award-winning teacher and you've gotten an award for a class that is a, a class that tries to bring together 18th century literature and digital humanities. And the class was called Haunted by History, the Deep 18th Century. Tell us a little bit about that class. Yes, that was a that was a master's uh, level seminar that I taught at Utah State University when I was on the faculty there. And um, that class we traced um, sort of mini arcs of adaptation around particular texts. 
And the inspiration for the class was the musical Hamilton and the way that it uses a bunch of archival documents and texts and sort of remediates them. Um, if you start to list all of the archival documents referred to or like have actual songs made about them in that musical, you realize what an intense sort of remediation of the archive it is. And so um, we, we talked about Hamilton and then we sort of did these other arcs. So for example, we read um, Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe. We read a later 18th century um, adaptation of it called The Female American. In, it, is a, it is a Robinsonade, it's, in, it's an imitation of Robinson Crusoe, but the protagonist is a woman and is half white, half Native American, and it is really intensely interested in questions of gender and race and how those are at play in Robinson Crusoe and how those dynamics affect the story. And then we then read um, Could Say as Foe, which is you know, a post-colonialist retelling that is also really interested in gender dynamics. So, and that's you know, 20th century. So we trace this kind of long arc of how Robinson Crusoe functions and gets spoken back to. And each of these arcs that we did was kind of modeling what the students then did in their final projects which is they created a digital exhibition using a program called Omeka, where they would take objects from special collections, library archives, and trace arcs of a theme or idea or conversation that those documents related to that was still resonant with us today. Um, so for example, um, one student pulled a lot of documents about the Haitian revolution, and this was at a time when um, the then president had said some fairly unspeakable things about Haiti and ha and he developed this really compelling project where he used um, the online digital public exhibition space to show um, how, you know, racist ideas about what it means to be, you know, enlightened had participated in basically writing Haiti out of our popular histories of the enlightenment so that we talk about the American revolution, we talk about the French revolution, the Haitian revolution was happening at the same time and was um, in many ways more radical and more influential um, on you know, global history. And yet it's much less taught in, for example, American public schools. And the student was a middle school public school teacher um, who was getting his master's as part of his kind of ongoing education. And so he then went and took that project and used it to teach in his classroom about this, you know, this revolution that the students had not even heard of. Um, and so that's, that was the idea of the class is these alliances and conflicts between how we're still living in, in the, the legacy of the 18th century. Fascinating, fascinating. And also just, I'll say as a sideline, a very nice example of why uh, the study of history has relevance for the present. A uh, point that at the Humanities Center, we're often reiterating that point. But um, we're coming to the end of our time, I think just time for maybe one or two more questions. Um, you're new to the University of Oregon. It's great to have you with us. Can you say what attracted you to the University of Oregon? I am thrilled to be here. Boy, has it been a weird year to start a new job, I gotta say. <laughs> but, um, but I am, I am really delighted to be here for a few reasons. Um, first of all, I think it's an incredible privilege to be in a, to have the job title of Assistant Professor of Digital Humanities. So um, very few institutions really are so committed to this area that they're willing to um, 
put it in the title of a tenure line position. And so to have that kind of um, institutional support to do the digital part of my work um, as a central part of my research uh, profile, as opposed to kind of an extra thing that I do is an incredible privilege and, uh, and really exciting. And I also was really attracted to the energy here around digital humanities. The fact that there was a hire in digital humanities is the product of an existing culture of you know, excitement around this area here. And you know, the work of people like Heidi Kaufman and Tara Fickle who've been really building this area for many years. Um, and I also, you know, really appreciate the emphasis on, um, on questions of social justice um, in the digital humanities here, questions of disability access, of race, um, and indigeneity. And there's just a lot of emphasis here on how digital humanities, um, which can sometimes be perceived as strangely, while new, also kind of old guard, um, that, uh, that it, it really can be part of the ways that humanities research is pushing forward. So I was really excited about that. And then I just have to say as a side note that um, the Pacific Northwest has always been my favorite region of the country. And um, the opportunity to live amongst the things that grow here is just spectacular. Maddie, on that wonderful note, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for telling us about your amazing work and your teaching. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I've been speaking with Maddie Burkert, Assistant Professor of English and Digital Humanities at the University of Oregon and the author of the Just Today published Speculative Enterprise, Public Theaters and Financial Markets in London, 1688 to 1763. Thanks so much for watching.